Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we are going to be doing a deep dive on one of the Western Conference playoff teams at the moment, the Oklahoma City Thunder. I'm here with Evan Damarell. And Evan, how are you doing today? Um, good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. So let's get started with discussing your most recent article on the hashtag basketball website. And I guess this was the big move of the Thunder offseason that they actually had control over, and that was the Serge Ibaka trade. Before Kevin Durant decided to sign with the Golden State Warriors, they traded longtime mainstay Serge Ibaka for two of the most important pieces for the Thunder this season in DeMontis Sabonis, and I think they're second or third best player, depending on how you feel about Steven Adams, in Victor Oladipo. And this is the kind of hot take that's easy to make right about now, given their respective play so far this season, but I think Oladipo on his own has been better than Serge Ibaka this year, and he's a lot younger, and he fits in better with the Thunder as a team, given that he's not going to take away minutes from either Adams or Ennis Cantor. So what are your thoughts on how Oladipo has played so far? I think Victor has played really well so far for Oklahoma City. I was pleasantly surprised, to say the least. Looking back at the trade, when it first happened, I was definitely surprised. Um, just kind of sitting back watching the draft, and the next thing you see is the Thunder traded Serge Ibaka and, and for Victor Oladipo. And at first, it made sense maybe as a way to entice Kevin Durant, and obviously it didn't work out in the end. He signed with Golden State. What's happened ha- has happened at this point. But no, um, I was hesitant at first. I, I was probably part of the majority who thought, okay, maybe he's going to be a bit of a replacement for Dion Waiters because Dion Waiters did go to Miami at that point. So it's pretty interesting. But no, Victor's definitely played way above my expectations, um, especially since he was such a ball dominant guard with his time in Orlando. And the, he's been great. He's been a solid defense perimeter defender. He's played well off of Westbrook. And even in times when we had to put Westbrook on the bench and, or just to rest him for a bit, Old Eagles definitely been able to pick up the slack, like maybe date the podcast a little bit. But last night against Golden State, he played great for just about a maybe seven-minute span where he was just putting up steals and hitting jumpers and everything else. It's just, I mean, I'm pleasantly surprised, and he's definitely a young piece to build with, and it's just, it's been great. And plus, you know, Serge is, part of the reason they probably traded Serge, too, was he was obviously looking for a big payday, and he played third fiddle for a while behind Kevin Russell, and at that point, it's just like, I don't know, he was just an aging big man whose defensive ability seemed to be a bit behind him at that point. And I think the front office took the gamble on the fact that, well, if he wants to be the center, why don't we, or the center of attention or the first option, let's find a team that wants him. And Orlando was able to give a pretty good deal in the end for Oklahoma City in that regard. I think the most important part of Oladipo's play so far for the Thunder is that he has gone from a slightly below average three-point shooter to a 37 point three percent shooter from deep at the time of this podcast. He's also added nearly two three point attempts per game to his numbers from last season. He's now up to a little under six three point attempts per game. And especially given how shooting challenged this Thunder team is, Oladipo being able to develop that part of his game has been really important. Oh yeah, I completely agree in that regard too. And like I said, it's just been a pleasant surprise. Um thought he was gonna be another Dion Waiters for Oklahoma City where if he took threes he just kinda wins and 
hope maybe they'll go in, and every now and then they do, but he's become more and more consistent of a three-point shooter, and granted, I think playing with Westbrook and the defensive attention that he attracts as well also puts a lot of pressure off him as well from the three-point line, and, and like you said, um, Oklahoma City is definitely three-point challenged, or three-point shooting challenged, and it's it's been tough to watch at times, so it's been enjoyable to watch Old Depot hitting three-pointers at at least a more consistent clip than he has in the past. And on that front, the other plus three-point shooter that they added in that trade, rookie DeMontis Sabonis, who has started every game for the Thunder so far this season, which is remarkable in and of itself, especially given that this rookie class has not exactly performed up to expectations. But Sabonis is only averaging 21 minutes a game, so he's one of those sort of nominal starters that, you know, is in at the beginning of the game, but isn't getting the kind of minutes that, say, Ennis Cantor is behind him. Although, actually, Cantor's only about half a minute per game, more than Sabonis. But Sabonis is shooting 36.4% from three. That's gone down slightly in the last few weeks. He was closer to 40% near the start of the season. But his rebounding is mediocre at best. His defense leaves a lot to be desired. I think he's definitely got a shot at one of the all-rookie teams, if not the all-rookie first team, but he shoots free throws at a historically low rate. He barely ever gets to the line, and I think part of that is the same problem that Oladipo has with you're not going to get many looks when Russell Westbrook is on your team and has the ball. He's actually got 13 free throw attempts in his last seven games, but through the first 25 games, he'd only shot two free throw attempts. He might defer his shots a little bit, too, for sure, but... um. Westbrook is definitely the driving force of the team and everything, and um, Sabonis probably just may not get as many touches as he should, but he has to just learn his place in the NBA, and I'm sure like like many of his other percentages and his stats, it'll probably grow as he moves along. But the free throw number, um, that's actually pretty surprising. I didn't know it was such a low number. I guess that's a stat I haven't been keeping track of. I just noticed every now and then it's like maybe he gets to the line two maximum three times a night and you just kind of learn to roll with the punches at this point with him. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's been up and down. There's times when I look at Sabonis and I said, wow, he might be the future cornerstone piece. And at the same time, when I looked at the draft pick, I thought, okay, he needs a little bit of time to develop. I thought he'd be sitting possibly even third on the depth chart at the beginning of the season. And I was definitely surprised when um, they shipped off Ilyasova to who was a part of the Orlando trade as well off to Philadelphia for Jeremy Grant. And I'm thinking, well, is Nick Collison going to start? And that'd just be a travesty, honestly, on both sides of the ball. And I don't know. Like you said, it's obviously he can't produce nearly as much with Westbrook dominating the ball. And he's, his rebounding and defense has been... It leaves things to be desired, but I guess he plays within himself and 36.4% three-point shooter this season, which isn't terrible, obviously, for a rookie, but especially for a big man nonetheless. Uh, but I guess I'm taking more of a wait-and-see approach when it comes to Sabonis at this point. I think the potential is definitely there, and as he grows, his game will grow with him, as probably cliche as that saying is, but we'll see. I don't know. We'll have to see what happens with him, but it's been a pleasant surprise. Sabonis and Oladipo have both been pleasant surprises this season, and Ibaka, you discussed this, has been a better offensive player, which I think is reasonable given that he went from playing alongside Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant to playing alongside, let's just say, an offensively challenged Orlando Magic roster. But one thing that you pointed out 
is that his blocks have gone down once again, and he led the league in blocks just a few seasons ago, and now he's sort of around the middle range of centers in the league in terms of shot blocking. So looking at that, do you think Ibaka's just fallen off on that end, or do you think that might just be a function of playing alongside a, another really solid shot blogger in Bismack Biombo and an absolute athletic freak in Aaron Gordon at the other frontcourt spot? I think it's a little bit of a combination of both, actually. It's just he's obviously getting up there a little bit, and this may be, I'm not, a, I don't want to say because I'm not an NBA GM or a professional scout or anything, but this might be his last major payday and he took a bet on himself definitely in the fact that he wanted to be the guy on offense and he's definitely responded with averages of 15.6 points and up from his career average and everything, but it's just like he was known as a lockdown defender, premier shot blocker, elite defender for the longest time, and it's just kind of dwindled down a little bit. And also, if the other thing is he wanted to be the guy on offense, and he played third fiddle to Durant and Westbrook for all those years, and even James Harden at times, and it's just... I don't know, if he wanted to get the major payday, I was expecting at least averages of 22 points instead of just what he's been averaging so far this season. I definitely think it was a risky move at the time when Oklahoma City made it, because even now, um, Sabonis can be at times. It's, he can sometimes be a bit of a question mark, especially when he has to fill the shoes that Ibaka left behind and everything else, and it's just it's just been interesting to say the least. Uh, he's been he's been solid but inconsistent I think is what I said in my article. There's times when he looks phenomenal. He's putting up great sat lines and everything else, and there's other nights where he just doesn't even appear. And um, I guess my other beef with the trade was, at least, when I look at Orlando, they're a team to me was on the precipice of being a lot of what like Philadelphia is now, where they have a lot of just young talent, it all just starts mashing together. Especially when they got Frank Vogel as their coach, it's just all worked out perfectly. Because like I don't know if many people who are listening watch football, but it's like the oh, um, the San Francisco 49ers a few years ago when they got Harbaugh to come in as the coach, and they had such a talented roster, they just needed the guy to put it all together. And I thought Vogel was going to be that guy, especially with a lot of their young pieces. And in my mind, Aaron Garden's more of a traditional power forward, and now he's forced to slide over to the small forward spot. And he's played well in that role, obviously, and he's responded well to it, and he's been real upbeat. But I guess just adding a bucket to the equation on top of Bianco just creates an even bigger logjam for a team like Orlando to work it out. And I guess the gamble in the end did work out in Oklahoma City's favor because they did get a really solid piece in Victor Oladipo, and he's responded well to playing off the ball and not being nearly as ball dominant and playing as a player next to Russell Westbrook. And he's, I would say, that he is the second best player on the team. And he's supplanted Steven Adams for that spot. And it's just, I don't know, it's just been interesting. I think the other thing worth noting is Oladipo is 24, Sabonis is 20, and Ibaka is 27. And the Thunder got Oladipo to sign a four-year, $80 million extension that might pay him less than Serge Ibaka gets in the next few years. And obviously Sabonis, as a rookie, is under team control for at least three years after this one. Now, the other part of the trade that you discussed was Ersan Elisova, who almost immediately was swapped for Jeremy Grant. Ersan Elisova is having one of his best seasons in a while with Philadelphia as a stretch four, and you talked about this in the article, 
the exact kind of player that the Thunder would have loved to have this season. But if we're going to talk about the ages of the pieces of the Ibaka portion of the trade, Ursan Ilyasova is almost 30, and Jeremy Grant is still 22 years old. And he is shooting a remarkable 42% from three, which I think is an aberration given his previous career marks. But if he can be even a league average three-point shooter, Grant is an incredible athlete who hopefully can grow into his frame enough to have the heft to guard power forwards going forward. But even if he doesn't, he's a remarkable athlete who has still a lot of room to grow. And Ilyasova has been a lot better than Grant this season. But if we're talking about, say, the next few years, Ilyasova is going to be on the decline shortly, given that he's about to hit his 30s, and Grant still has a long way to go. So you discussed how that portion of the trade seemed like a loss, but I don't know, I'm not ready to give up on Jeremy Grant just yet. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from, but I guess the mindset I was looking at is Oklahoma City was trying to make a trade route when they got Oladipo, who's a proven scorer and everything else, that they retool and move forward. Obviously not as a top team in the Western Conference that went seven games with Golden State last year, but as a team that is still a threat in the Western Conference, like make it to the first and maybe a tough out in the second round. But I understand that he is 30 years old and he will be on the decline and everything else. But I was also just more so shocked, I guess. I guess I should maybe explain a little bit of my writing. That we traded for Jeremy Grant, but we still kept Dominic Sabonis in the starting lineup because my original thought process was is let Sabonis develop, learn from Ilya Silva, send him down to the D League maybe if then let him get him get him his minutes down there and everything else. But instead he was thrust into the starting lineup, but Grant has been good. He's been solid for Oklahoma City this year. Um, he's a great defender. Uh, like you said, he's shooting at a three-pointers at an incredible clip this year. And he's definitely been an entertaining dunker and attacker of the rim and everything else. And I guess we'll have to get a better taste of him in the next few games until Steven Adams is back. Because from what I gather, they're going to keep Jeremy Grant as a starting power forward and keep Sabonis at center for the time being. So I'll gladly eat crow if Jeremy Grant ends up being a catalyst for Oklahoma City because youth definitely is a huge factor in the Billy Sova trade, but at the time I was just looking at as scoring outputs and everything else. The other thing with Grant, just in terms of starting him at the power forward, he's just, he's too thin at this point. I mean, he will get absolutely bodied by any of the bigger power forwards that teams roll out. And maybe this is the kind of situation where Billy Donovan can roll out Jeremy Grant against teams that start a stretchier four, say, have him guard a Ryan Anderson, because he can follow guys around on the perimeter really well. But if you try and put him up against, say, Zach Randolph, and granted, Randolph doesn't start anymore, but if you try and put him up against that kind of player, he's just, he can't guard him. He's going to get pushed into the hoop every time. Yeah, that, that's a good point as well. It's a stretcher for us, and it's, maybe it's a bit more flexi- roster flexibility with the fact that maybe Donovan needs to tool a little bit if we're still um, hanging around in the seventh seed and not capitalizing on the fact that Los Angeles is going through some problems and injury problems and everything else, and we can't jump on the opportunity to move forward. And like you said, uh, stretcher fours, like players like Ryan Anderson, or maybe even a good way to look at it is uh, this upcoming Sunday, Oklahoma City is in Cleveland, and they can get a good look at a 
premier stretch four in Kevin Love, and they could definitely put that theory to the test then as well. And it'd be something interesting to watch, that's for sure. The other major offseason acquisition for the Thunder was Alex Sabrinas, brought over from the Spanish leagues. And his job is basically just to shoot threes. He's averaging 4.6 field goal attempts per game, and of those, 3.3 of them have been three-pointers. So pretty much three-quarters of his shots are coming from behind the arc. He's shooting a decent 37.2% on those. His two-point field goal percentage is not great, 43% on two-pointers, but that's fine when he's shooting as many three-pointers as he has been. I guess the biggest question with Abrinas is, can he be a even neutral defender? Because he has, he has been on and off, to say the least, on the defensive end. On and off, granted, he is a rookie as well, and, well, maybe he does have experience in the Euro Leagues and everything else, but the NBA is a different beast for everyone, no matter how much experience you have, you still, there's going to be a learning curve here regardless, but I could see Abrinas being at least an average defender, um, I mean, Ennis Cantor is probably one of the worst defenders, at least at protecting the rim in the NBA, and Oklahoma City still tries to find a way to mask at least some of the problems by pairing him with uh, Steven Adams on the court at the same time. And if in a Brina situation, you can maybe it's similar to what Cleveland does when they face Golden State in the finals. They kind of kept Irving on the off ball and try to keep him off Curry to exploit the defensive matchup in a pick and roll situation. Same thing with Kevin Love in that scenario too, but just maybe try and mask a little bit of his defensive weakness just to counterbalance it by the fact that he does shoot three-pointers. He shoots them that's mostly what he shoots, and that's his job, and he knows it. And obviously, Oklahoma City hurts for three-point shooting for most of the time. If Especially if Westbrook or Oladipo aren't hitting, it's pretty much a no-man's land when it comes to three-point shooting For some, at some points. It's just, Abrinas has been interesting. I think Billy Donovan's a great coach, and he's been a solid hire, and especially over Scott Brooks, and Scott Brooks did a good job developing, especially Westbrook and the player he is, but I think Donovan can innovate and find ways to mask players that are defensive liabilities in the court to the fact that maybe their offensive output counterbalances the defensive liability. But I do think in time, Abrinas could become a serviceable defender. I guess we'll just have to take the wait and see approach since it, he is, uh, it is his first major, it's his first time getting major NBA minutes after playing in the early for so long. All right, let's move on to the Thunder big man rotation. And we discussed him quite a bit already, but I guess my biggest question about the Thunder big rotation is, do you think Sabonis should start? And I think most people would agree that Cantor is a better player than Sabonis, but he also has some deficits that Sabonis does not have, certainly to the same extent. So there's also the possibility that you could move small and start Jeremy Grant at power forward. You could maybe consider starting, say, Laverne, although he's maybe even a worse defender than Cantor is. Yeah. But do you think the starting lineup with Sabonis in that four spot is the way the Thunder should continue to play down the stretch of the season? We'll have to see what happens at the trade deadline. Um, I'm a big proponent of trying to go out and try and maybe finding a bit more of a serviceable power forward and maybe sliding Sabonis to a bench role. But at least when it comes to Cantor, uh, I think he thrives best in a six-man role for Oklahoma City where he can be a spark off the bench and provide energy and uh, just instant scoring and everything else and rebounding and just what Verjal was for Cleveland a few years ago before 
the Achilles injury happened. I, I'm more than okay with the fact that if Donovan wants to pull Sabonis towards the end of the game and run with a super big lineup of Cantor and Adams at the same time, like they did it in the playoffs last year and it worked in stretches, but I believe Cantor's more of a defensive liability than Sabonis is, especially at the power forward spot, that it would be definitely tricky to mix it up. And I mean, Oklahoma City is sitting pretty right now in the seventh spot, and they don't really have much heat from behind them right now, at least from Denver and Portland for the as the eighth seed trying to fight them in for the seventh seed. So Donovan can keep tinkering with the lineup if he wants to, but I'm comfortable with keeping Sabonis in the starting lineup for at least the time being. Unless he does something catastrophically terrible for a decent stretch, then maybe it's time to say, okay, we should switch up the lineup a little bit. Yeah, I think the question is more, do you want to put Jeremy Grant as a small four? Because I agree with you, I think Cantor makes a lot more sense coming off the bench, especially because the players that he's going to be trying to guard are not going to be as good as the starters. And also the players that are trying to guard him are not going to be as good as when he's in the starting lineup. But the most important big man on the Thunder roster is Steven Adams, and they signed him this offseason to a healthy contract extension. And so far this year, he hasn't been as incredible as he was in the playoffs last year, but he's averaging a solid 12 points, 7.5 rebounds per game, both of which are career highs. And he is a great defender for a Thunder team that kind of is lacking in that department. Maybe not to the degree that they're lacking in the three-point shooting department, Mm -hmm. but certainly something that the team struggles with that Adams does very, very well. Yeah, I definitely agree in that regard. Adams has definitely stepped up big time. Um, He's actually become more of a, at least at the start of the season, I was pleasantly surprised with how consistent, I guess is the best way to put it, for as a scorer and how many more points and everything else. It's just like how he stepped up to the task that the void Kevin Durant leaving left behind. And it's been definitely showing in the last two games when he's been out with a concussion against Los Angeles and Golden State, and I don't know when he'll be back since concussions are tricky and you should never play around with those, but it's definitely his lack of defensive presence has been felt, um, especially last night against Golden State when you have players like Steph Curry and Draymond and everyone on the everyone on the Warriors at that point were just attacking the rim at will at times because Oklahoma City went small at first and decided to slide Sabonis in at center and put Jeremy Grant in at the power forward spot and that's fine but uh, the problem is with teams like Golden State and everything else is Oklahoma City just doesn't have, like the top contending Western Conference teams it's just they don't have the firepower to necessarily compete with them so there's only so much Westbrook can do and Oladipo as well and it's just Adams just provides that defensive edge and maybe just a little bit of toughness and grit that is just sorely missed when he's not on the floor or in the lineup and he's definitely been a he's definitely been a bright spot on what seemed like it was going to be a dreary season for Oklahoma City after losing Durant. I think the other important thing to note with Adams is that he is currently 6th in the league among players who have enough attempts to qualify for the field goal percentage leaderboards at 59.6% from the floor and his free throw percentage is also better than everyone ahead of him on that list by a pretty decent margin in some cases. And especially since Adams has struggled from the line at times in his career, that is really a huge improvement from him, and that makes a big difference to this Thunder team. Oh no, I most definitely agree with that. And it's just like, 
you look at players such as Andre Drummond with Detroit and Dwight Howard in Atlanta and other big men in the NBA, DeAndre Jordan, oh God, how could I even forget him in Los Angeles? There's such liabilities at the free throw line that even if they bring such a great defensive presence that offensively, you know that if like a big man like Adams or just Adams in general, I should say, is sent to the free throw line after a foul for an and one, or just foul during the shot, or what, anything like that, is you know it's not going to be a liability where you lose on the chance of possibly scoring two points, or even three in an and one scenario on uh, each offensive possession. It's been refreshing definitely to see that he committed to that aspect of his game. I mean, a lot of us who are armchair coaches and GMs can say how hard can it be to hit free throws so it was ugly at first and with his free throw shooting but it's definitely gotten better especially this season and since like you said um he doesn't demand a lot of touches either on the offensive side of the ball but when he is given the ball he produces on the offensive side and defense he's always been solid for Oklahoma City so he's I think he's performing perfectly and way above my expectations at least. All right, let's move on to the wing and guard rotation. And the player I want to start with there is Andre Roberson, who has also, along with DeMontis Savonis and obviously Russell Westbrook, started every game for the Thunder this season. His three-point shooting is down to 27%, which is troubling. And granted, he's one of the best defensive wings in the league, and that shouldn't be overlooked. But even last year, when he shot a little over 31% from three, that's just so much less damaging than the 27% he's put up this season. And he's shooting 41% from the free throw line. And the sad part is that that's improved in recent weeks. He was worse than that for quite a portion of the season. I think at one point he was down near 30%. So I guess the question is, and you sort of brought this up earlier, do you think Oklahoma City should look to keep Roberson in the starting lineup going forward, or should they just try and make a big trade for someone on the wing who can shoot besides Oladipo? Before last night, I was a big, 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 big proponent of trying to get Rudy Gay from Sacramento, but unfortunately, Rudy has ruptured his Achilles at this point, and it definitely stinks because he's 30 years old and definitely losing a lot of his athleticism in his game, and rupturing your Achilles can just, just completely cripples your career if you look at players like Kobe and Wes Matthews and everything, and it's just, it's a shame, and, and if that scenario, if we were able to land Rudy Gay, I would slide Roberson back to his more natural shooting guard position like he did last year and it would negate the fact that he's shooting at such a poor percentage because it'd be similar to his time back when Durant was still with the team where he wasn't getting nearly as touches when he has to compete with Westbrook and Durant so at this time I mean I guess the thing I think Oklahoma City should definitely do is see what kind of market is out there for small forwards um, preferably consistent jump shooter. Even in Sacramento still, if Omri Caspi was available, I'd even consider looking at him because he's not lights out shooter or anything, but he's definitely a lot more consistent than Roberson can be. And my biggest thing too is I'm also curious in the fact that either you could put Roberson and have him come off the bench as your backup shooting guard or just kind of tinker with the lineup, backup shooting guard, small forward, whatever you want to do with him. Or even possibly you could slide Oladipo back to the bench and he could play more of a traditional six-man role because in his time in Orlando, Oladipo was used as a point guard at times and he was a good creator for the team and he is a ball-dominant guard. It goes back to his days in Indiana when he was a ball-dominant guard too. And I mean, that's just another aspect that I'd be curious to look at. But Roberson, yeah, he's been pretty pretty pitiful from the three-point line and his shooting percentages have been 
been pretty bad, but it's just interesting because he's such a defensive stalwart that sometimes you can look past it, but in situations when you want him to shoot the ball, it's just you kind of want to look away and cringe, though, because you know the shot's just not going to go in. I do want to quickly object to your notion that Omri Caspi is not a knockdown shooter. Because as a big Omri Caspi fan, I would like to point out that he's been above 40% from three each of the previous two seasons and is at 38% this season despite a massively decreased role. But in the theme of Kings wing players that Oklahoma City has looked at for a trade, Caspi is also injured. He has a strained right calf, so he's going to be out for a bit anyway. Well, thankfully, the deadline's not till towards the end of February, so maybe he can, hopefully he'll be back to full health by then, but it's just a player that I looked at, and his contract's pretty agreeable for most teams. I mean, I'm sure a lot of teams would be interested in his services. He would be great for the Thunder. I can say that for sure. But let's move on to looking at the early season for the Thunder. Now, as you said, they are seventh. They're actually tied with the Grizzlies, but I think they don't have the tiebreaker. They don't have the tiebreaker, but the record-wise, they're at the same spot right now for sixth and seventh. Yeah, so basically sixth, but they have been very up and down this season. They started off really hot, then they lost a bunch of games in a row, and they've lost both of their last two games by more than 20 points after the Adams concussion. And granted, that was to the Clippers and the Warriors, so not exactly bottom feeder teams. But I think that's been one of the more interesting stories of the season for the Thunder is that they... Instead of, you know, being relatively even keeled, they'll go on long hot streaks followed by extended losing streaks. Yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's been interesting to watch. I I said at the beginning of the season that this team will live and die by Russell Westbrook, and it has lived and died by Russell Westbrook, where he'll do everything possible because he's a screaming hell beast on the offensive end, where he can get to the rim at will, and he's more than willing to create shots and gobble up rebounds like Lance Stevenson did in his uh, Indiana days, and it's just been surreal to watch, I guess. They're definitely keeping pace right now in the Western Conference. Utah, by no means, is a bad team, and I think part of the reason Oklahoma City, they did have that hot start at the beginning, but Utah did have to fight injuries to start the season, and they still have a few nagging problems every now and then, but I think they can hang with Utah to possibly win the division, but it'll definitely come down to the wire, and if I were Billy Donovan in the Thunder, um, possibly making a trade by the trade deadline or making some type of roster move to try and at least ensure home court advantage, because in the Western Conference, for me right now, the top team is clearly Golden State. I mean, no no matter how you shake it, even after they lost the NBA Finals, as soon as they got Durant, it's just, they're back. They're, they're the team to beat again. And then you have San Antonio and Houston, who's been incredible at times. And I mean, almost for the entire season, they've been incredible. And then it's kind of getting muddy through the 4 through 8 spot. And I definitely could see Oklahoma City making the jump to 4, especially with the fact that Chris Paul is out with injury and Blake Griffin's been out with injury. And LA's been fluctuating a lot at times too but uh it's just been they started out hot and it's the fires kind of died down a little bit especially um the last two games which were not pretty to say the least especially against golden state last night when they were tied up at half and then i felt pretty confident that they were gonna win it and then just kind of slowly watched it unravel as the game went on but i could definitely see them finishing in in at least fourth at the highest but seventh at the lowest because like i said they have Denver and Portland right now nipping at their heels, and they have a pretty comfortable lead against them right now. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, as my next question, whether you thought the Thunder were sort of locked into the seventh seed or if they could make a push for somewhere higher in the standings. And that obviously has changed massively with the Chris Paul injury news. And also the fact that the Thunder have now tied up Memphis is sort of an interesting prospect on that front. And I guess from my perspective, if I were the Thunder... I would be really, really, really pushing as hard as I possibly could for six seed or above, because I think the Spurs are just the kind of team that will throw Kawhi on Russell Westbrook. It's game over at that point. Yeah, that's it. I don't think the Thunder have a chance of beating the Spurs. I don't think they have a chance of beating the Warriors. So the question is, would they have a shot at beating Houston in a seven-game series? And... I think that is by far the most likely prospect. And then the other question is, if they can climb as high as the five seed, depending on how far the Clippers fall, which given their record in the past few years without Chris Paul, and the fact that Blake Griffin isn't quite back yet, they might have a shot at maybe even the fourth or fifth seed. And that would make a huge difference for them. Oh yeah, most definitely. To answer your question about Houston, um, it'd definitely be a track meet. It'd be which team can beat up on the other team hard enough. And Houston's just a lethal team from the three-point line, which is also where Oklahoma City's at its weakest, a three-point shooting. So Houston can kill you in volume, and they kill you quickly, and especially with James Harden playing at what I think is an MVP level, and Eric Gordon being who I also think is a uh, six-man of the year. And Houston, actually, which is also surprising, is under Mike D'Antoni, they're not a bad defensive team, like his teams in New York and Los Angeles were at times. And I could definitely see them taking it to six or seven games, if possible. Just, like I said, live by Westbrook, die by Westbrook. So if Russell Westbrook comes out as a world beater and the baddest man in the world, I can definitely see him being the key component on forcing a game six or game seven. But realistically... If we got past Houston and then we make it to the second round, I think it's safe to say at that point it would be either against San Antonio or Golden State. It's just quietly watch your season go down the tubes at that point. But to then answer your question about Los Angeles, they're an interesting team, to say the least. Um, they're definitely uh, the strength or adversity with them. Um, if one thing isn't going wrong, it's something else. Because Lake went down, I thought, okay, well, maybe Oklahoma City can jump on that. And Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan and everybody else has really picked up the slack and really kept the team moving. And uh, I think Doc has a good pulse on him. But now with Chris Paul going down, it's just, I think it's a wide open race right now for at least four through seven in that spot. So it can definitely fluctuate. And if Oklahoma City is able to jump on it and seize the opportunity and fight with Utah along the way as well, because Utah by no means is a bad team. And it's just, it'll be an interesting fight to say the least. But I think the Chris Paul injury definitely widened up a lot of things. And we'll have to see where things shake up. But I could, it just depends on where they get placed. If they get home court, that's great. In the first round, at least, that'll be great, especially against a team like Los Angeles that they have played well against at full strength early on in the season. And even Memphis, if Memphis is able to sneak up there, Memphis would be an interesting matchup too. But it'll just be interesting to see where things shake up because it's, just, it's a wide-open race right now. We've been beating around the bush for <laughs> far too long, so let's get to basically just the entirety of the Thunder team, which is... Russell Westbrook, who somehow, despite the fact that we're more than halfway through the season, is still averaging a triple-double with more than 30 points a game. 
which is the kind of thing that you think there's just 0% chance that this will ever happen again. No one can ever pull the Oscar Robertson. And yet, here we are with Russell Westbrook and his 42% usage rate and still averaging that triple-double. And those rebounds are, on the one hand, vaguely empty because the Thunder allow him to get those rebounds, and on the other hand, not empty at all because they want him to get those rebounds so that he can lead the break. Yeah, he pushes it right up the floor because he's just such an athletic freak. So I guess that's the question, is can he continue at this just absurd pace. And if there's anyone I can think of that could continue to play with 130% fire for an entire season, it would be Russell Westbrook. But there's still part of me that just looks at these numbers and doesn't quite believe them because they just don't seem possible. Well, I thought, I mean, the Oscar Robertson thing, the triple average, the triple double, scoring 100 points the game, things like that, even the Chicago Bulls, um, all-time regular season record, I didn't think any of that would be broken. And then, of course, here comes Golden State, who shatters that standard last year. And I don't know. When Kevin Durant left, you could definitely tell Russell was bitter about it. And he's the type of player who likes to play with a chip on his shoulder. And if you give him a reason to put a chip on his shoulder, he plays even tougher. And uh, thanks to KD, which is hard to say as a Oklahoma City fan now, he put a Herculean-sized chip on Westbrook's shoulder, and he just has to come out and be the baddest guy every single night. And I could definitely see him keeping it up. Uh, he keeps himself in such good shape, and like I said before, he's just he's an athletic freak of nature. And like you said, they the Thunder encourage him to get the rebounds, and he's always a willing because he starts to break as soon as he gets touches the ball, and he's a willing passer, and he can score in volumes from either the three-point line or pull-ups in transition or just earth-shattering dunks or just attacking the rim at will, and I could definitely see him keeping it up, that's for sure. Alright, so let's move on to talking about the best and worst games for the Thunder this season. And going back to the theme of earlier in the podcast, I don't want to spoil anything, but I think my favorite part of this section of the podcast is that the best games, the two best games are each one game apart from the two worst games that we're going to discuss. But let's start off with the best games. And I think the best game the Thunder have played this season was their game on New Year's Eve against the Clippers, and they just demolished them. And granted, the Clippers were without Chris Paul, they were without Blake Griffin, which makes things tougher for them. But at the end of the day, the Clippers were, at the time, a team ahead of them in the playoff standings, and the Thunder destroyed them. The first quarter was 33-12 to in favor of the Thunder. And it was basically garbage time from that point forward. And they still managed to outscore them by a decent margin in the second quarter. And they were only outscored by three points in the second half, despite resting basically everybody. No, that was definitely a great game to watch. And like you said at the time, they pulled Oklahoma City ahead of Los Angeles two to, I believe it was two to one in the tiebreaker. So if that scenario, like these games all matter, especially when you're running in the middle of the pack, because Los Angeles is a team that's on the outside looking in for at least the top three spots in the Western Conference. So all the games from four to probably eight will all be important. So, but no, it was one of the best games Oklahoma City played by far. Um, they were locked in on defense. Westbrook got his 16th triple-double, which is just icing on the cake at this point. 16. 
at that point in the season is just incredible in itself too. And it was just it was a solid game for Oklahoma City, and it definitely set the notion forward that maybe okay, maybe it wasn't a fluke that Oklahoma City started off hot, and then like you said, these are some of the best games, but immediately after some of their worst games as well. So it's just kind of also drove home the point that they're still a little bit inconsistent at times. The funniest part for me about this game was that Andre Roberson shot 3-for-11 from the field and 1-for-7 from 3, but oddly enough hit both of his free throws. But the fact that one of the Thunder starters could shoot that poorly and they could still put up 114 points against a Clippers team that is not bad on the defensive end. And granted, Chris Paul might be their best defensive player, but... DeAndre Jordan is still a force around the basket. He played in this game, and Luke Mbamute is an incredible defensive player, pretty much a non-factor on offense, but still an incredible defensive player. And, I mean, the Thunder just ran him out of the building. Yeah, no, it was awesome to watch, that's for sure. Like you said, DeAndre Jordan, Luke Mbamute, by no means are defensive scrubs. And even though Robertson, Robertson played so Robertson or Robertson, I've heard both pronunciations at this point, but he played poorly, and he shot poorly like it's normal for him at this point. I think it's just when you have a special player like Russell Westbrook who's able to, in a game like this, post his triple-double in the second quarter, uh, it just kind of sets the tone for how the night's going to go for the team as well. And then you have players like Ennis Cantor who put up 23 and 8 off the bench, and that's even better because, like we said earlier, um, he feasts on the fact that he's playing defenders that can't defend his scoring ability and the fact that his defensive liabilities aren't as exposed because he's not playing offensive juggernauts on the defensive side of the ball. Let's go a little bit further back in time in terms of the season to November 16th, where they won a really close game against the Rockets, 105-103, that looks better and better as the season goes on and the Rockets continue to demolish people. Now, it's kind of weird to say this about a game where they allowed 103 points, but I thought the most impressive part of that game by far was the Thunder defense. Eric Gordon shot 5 for 20, James Harden shot 4 for 16, and the deciding factor in the game was that the Thunder allowed Houston 13 points in the fourth quarter, and that that determined the game. I mean, without that fourth quarter, the Thunder lose by 5, and instead, despite only scoring 20 points in the quarter themselves, they managed to pull out the win. And I guess the big thing to look at was the backcourts, because as I just said, Gordon shot 5 for 20, James Harden 4 for 16, and Victor Oladipo shot 12 for 18, scored 29 points. Russell Westbrook only shot 45% from the field, but he got to the line 11 times, made 10 of them, ended up with 30 points. He didn't get a triple-double in this game, so, you know, I guess I guess, guess it couldn't have been really that good of a game if he didn't get a triple-double. <laughs> But that win, again, that win looks better and better as the Rockets continue to be one of the top five teams in the league this season. And granted, they didn't have Patrick Beverly for this game, and the Rockets have looked incredibly different since Beverly came back into the lineup. But allowing only 13 points to that Houston offense in the fourth quarter of a really close game was incredible performance and incredibly telling for how the potential Thunder Rockets series that we discussed earlier might go. Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to say the least. Like you said before, Patrick Beverly wasn't in the game. He didn't play, and 
and like I also said before, the team lives and dies by Russell Westbrook. So even though he didn't put up a triple-double, how dare he? I mean, I mean, everyone can do it at this point. But 30 points is still nothing to sneeze at, especially getting to the free-throw line 11 times as well. And the fact that he shot 50% from three also helped. But if Oklahoma City wants to contend with Houston um, to help match the scoring as well, we're going to have to see similar production from Victor Oladipo as well, who... Like we talked about way early on, um, he's been shooting so much better from three-point range this season. This is a game that really showed it. He shot 5-7 from the three-point line in this game and finished shooting overall 66.7% from the field. And, I mean, he also put in 10 rebounds and five assists, so there's a little bit of ball movement on his part as well. So as long as the Thunder backcourt comes to play in a playoff series if they were matched up against Houston, Beverly would definitely create defensive problems for Westbrook at least because, you know, he's always just been a player that's gotten under Westbrook's skin and James Harden's just been incredible this year. So it'll definitely be a shootout to say the least. And I also think Oklahoma City did catch Houston on an off night as well because you have players like Eric Gordon who's been shooting the ball incredibly well and it's just luck played a little bit of factor into it, but Oklahoma City definitely capitalized on the moment and it was a statement win for them early on in the season to show that they're going to be not as good as they were last year, obviously, without Kevin Durant, but things are going to be just fine with Russell Westbrook at the helm. So it wouldn't be fair to talk about those wonderful games that the Thunder played without talking about some of their more disappointing performances this season. And the one I wanted to start with was their game the day before their big win against the Clippers, where they lost to the Grizzlies 114 to 80. And we just talked about how the Thunder held Houston to 13 points in the fourth quarter of a close game. Well, in their game against Memphis, which was pretty much already over by the time the fourth quarter started, they allowed 36 points to the Grizzlies bench players, and they just couldn't score all night. Basically, everybody looked awful shooting-wise. They shot 34% from the floor. And Ennis Cantor actually had a solid game. He shot 7 for 11. And if you're not counting the 2 for 3 performance of Nick Collison and the 1 for 1 performance of Kyle Singler, and I guess the 2 for 4 from Jeremy Grant, no one shot above 35%. And that just can't happen. Oh, no. And then the problem is when you have, uh, I believe, I don't think Oladipo played this game. And that's the other problem is he's a shot creator and a ball handler for Oklahoma City. And they're already losing pretty bad at this point. And then Westbrook was ejected for that game. So there goes all your shot creator. That's, that's, that he's the primary key of the offense for Oklahoma City. So they just kind of laid over and rolled over and played dead at that point. Especially when you look at the starting five with Andre Roberson putting up Two points on 33% shooting. Then you have Domtis Sabonis with two points, Steven Adams with six, and Anthony Morrow with two. It was just an ugly offensive showing and definitely an ugly game in general. And especially when it got heated and Westbrook was ejected, uh, the Grizzlies just continued to pile it on and make matters even worse for Oklahoma City. Yeah, Westbrook had six turnovers in this game and zero assists. I guess I should have mentioned that as well. That was another bad part of it. I mean, that wasn't helped by the fact that no one was making shots. The rest of the Thunder starters, besides Westbrook, combined to shoot 4 for 20 from the field. That's incredible. And the other incredible part was that Mike Conley didn't play in this game for Memphis, and they still got just 
run out of the building. Jermichael Green shot 86% from the floor. Marcus All had 25 points. Zach Randolph shot 10 of 17 off the bench. Troy Daniels was just on fire. He ended up with 22 points in a little under 18 minutes. I mean, the Thunder just didn't try hard enough on defense, especially after Westbrook was ejected, and they could score. They just, other than Ennis Cantor, they just could not put the ball in the basket. Exactly, and it's, I mean, four players besides your main player, just you're supposed to support and everything else, but no, it's definitely a frustrating game to watch to say the least, and thankfully they bounced back soon after, but like I said, it's, they've had some of the highest of highs and some of the lowest of lows this season. And speaking of highest of highs and lowest of lows, let's go to our other game to note in terms of the poor, let's just say, column for the Thunder. Right before their big win against the Rockets, they lost to the Pistons 104-88, to and Reggie Jackson didn't play in this game for the Pistons, although, as we've seen since Reggie Jackson's return, that might have actually been a positive for them. But Andre Drummond also didn't play in this game, and they still lost to the Pistons by almost 20. Yeah, and especially by the fact that Westbrook had 33 points, 15 rebounds, and 8 assists. It's just It was another example of players not even able to make the shots. One of the biggest problems was, is I'm looking at the box score right now, Victor Oladipo finished 4-17 from the floor, which is adds up to 23.5% shooting, and 1-7 from 3, it's just, and he finished uh, with a plus-minus of minus 5. It's just, just mediocre nights like that are what's going to kill the team, especially when you have one guy who's just being, who's playing like a world beater out there, then the rest of the team just doesn't show up. And then, I mean, granted, you have Ennis Cantor, who finished with 10 points off the bench on 4-9 shooting, and then you have Jeremy Grant, who finished with 11 points off the bench, but you need production from all your other... You need other players to step up the, other than the player who is playing at an MVP level. And then, on the other side of the ball, you have Detroit, who, even without Drummond that night and Reggie Jackson, they still have solid players in... Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who finished with 17 points on 7-17 shooting. And then you have players like Tobias Harris, who finished with 22 points. And, I mean, they have they definitely have depth, and they exploited the fact that they shut down the other role players for Oklahoma City. They let Russell Westbrook have his shots, but no one else stepped up because Detroit was able to lock them down defensively and negate the fact that they were missing a premier player in Andre Drummond and a talented point guard in Reggie Jackson. I think the more troubling thing was that Stephen Adams let Aaron Baines run wild on him. 20-8 and eight from Baines on 8 of 13 shooting, and Adams attempted three shots and made one of them. And I think that's almost more troubling than Oladipo just having a rough shooting night, because Contavious Caldwell-Pope is one of the better defensive guards in the league, so it's not particularly surprising that... that Oladipo struggled against him, but Steven Adams should be destroying players like Baines on both ends of the floor, and it wasn't just that he couldn't score on him, because, you know, Adams isn't really a high-volume offensive player, but the fact that he allowed Baines to go off like that on the offensive end is, I think, more troubling than the rest of the Thunder's shaky performance. Yeah, especially on a player that prides himself on the defensive side of the ball, first things first. That's definitely troubling as well. And it's just, I think Bill Simmons uses that famous Patrick Ewing syndrome. 
kind of thing, where Detroit was missing its best players, but everybody else stepped up to the challenge that night. And players like Baines most definitely stepped up to the challenge and dominated a great defensive player in Steven Adams. And it was definitely a frustrating game to watch. And I think it's, was it the last game? It was the game before Houston, correct? This game against Detroit? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was the fourth game they lost in a row at that point. So things are starting to reach a boiling point. So if they went out to lose against Houston the next game, it just things probably would have been a lot uglier than they are now. Although to be fair, after they played Houston, they played the Nets. So I think they, I think they probably would have been able to get it back together anyway. Yeah, it's a good feel-good game. Unless you're, you know, following the Nets or anything. I guess we could talk about what's coming up in the week. They have a few key matchups actually coming up that are actually kind of interesting to me. Yeah, let's let's go through that really quickly. The Golden State game was definitely big, and then they're off for five days, and then they're back on Monday night against Utah, which is actually a pretty, I mean, obviously a key game because, you know, Utah's the division leader right now and everything else, and if Oklahoma City wants to capitalize on the set of events recently that could help them get home court advantage to the first round, I think it's going to start in this game against Utah, who they're already down one nothing in a season series with. And it'll definitely be interesting to watch. Utah's definitely playing a lot better as of late. They're fully healthy as of late. And it'll just be an interesting game to see. And then after that, they head to New Orleans, who actually has been playing a lot better lately because they're starting to get healthy. And they've been playing... I mean, Anthony Davis is just phenomenal, like always. So that'll be a good... uh That'll be a good test for Sabonis, for sure, to see how it goes. But Oklahoma City's up 2 nothing in the series, so every game at this point counts. And even if it's a team with a bad record, like New Orleans, who, even though they have been playing better of late, they're still not incredible record-wise, um, you still need to take come in every game seriously and then just play your way through. Because then they, after New Orleans, they play Dallas, who's arguably one of the worst teams in the league, if not in the bottom of the Western Conference, along with Phoenix. And, I mean, they have to, like, take that game seriously as well. And then, like, they have a good tune-up then that Sunday for the end of the week against Cleveland, which will be where maybe Billy Donovan will give us a quick listen and said, hey, maybe I'll try that three or I'll put Jeremy Grant on Kevin Love and see how that goes for a stretch four. So it's a, it's an interesting week. They have two pretty big games, obviously, against Utah and Cleveland. And then against two other, and then two other games against New Orleans and Dallas as well. So it'll be fun to watch, that's for sure. Yeah, it's too bad that Stephen Adams almost certainly won't be playing in that game against Utah because him versus Rudy Gobert would be a fun matchup. Oh yeah, for sure. And now that Anthony Davis is playing center more, it would also be fun to see him against the Pelicans. But you know, you definitely don't want to mess around with a concussion, especially to one of your long-term pieces. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, anything else you want to go over before we wrap up? No, I think we're good. All right, well, thanks so much for coming on. He is Evan Damerel. You can follow him on Twitter at amnotevan, A-M-N-O-T-E-V-A-N. You can follow me on Twitter at N-B-A underscore J-O-H-N-S-O-N. You can read both of our work on the hashtag basketball website, hashtag H-A-S-H-T-A-G-B-A-S-K-E-T-B-A-L-L. You can also follow the website's Twitter at hash basketball. They do a lot of great work with keeping injury updates for fantasy players and just general NBA news, so that's a great follow. If you have any thoughts, please feel free to reach out to me via Twitter. If 
you're liking the podcast, please leave a rating or review on whatever podcast player you might be listening to this on. And thanks so much for listening. <laughs>